0: Mr. Matt said, a please and a thank you go a long way. So, Keeley, please forgive me for having you read that scripture. (laughs) And thank you for forgiving me for having you read that scripture. It's not every day you get to say hell, adultery, and tell people to pluck their eyes out and cut their hands off in church. Would you all please pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. The narthex is buzzing at First Church Galilee. A young seminarian has been invited to preach. The son of a construction worker is the rumor. He's just finished his sermon, and the amount of responses were staggering. It started with oohs and ahs. There were a couple, amen, brother, but then there was Silence. There was some head scratching. and In the end, there were a few people who said, did he really just say that? Now, Mrs. Smith, she's a dedicated Sunday school teacher, and she's amassed a crowd by the coffee decanter. The nerve of that boy, she begins. Can you believe what we just heard? Don't you think he would have had the good sense to know that we don't come here to be told what to do, but we come here to feel better about ourselves? And parishioners all begin to nod in affirmation. But then Mr. Klein, he's the head usher, he steps in. Now That's not very nice of you, Mrs. Smith. He's young. He's full of the Spirit. Maybe maybe he didn't really mean it. Give me a break, Jim, Mrs. Smith retorts. Again, she's a good, good Sunday school teacher. You know he meant it. You don't get up in the pulpit and say things like that if you don't mean it. And that's when the preacher steps out of the line from shaking hands and walks up to the small but rather agitated crowd. Before he even has a chance to speak, however, Mrs. Smith lights right in him, you got a lot of nerve, you son of a carpenter. It's not very responsible to tell people to pluck out their eyes and cut off their arms. There were children present, Jesus. You know, I have half a mind to send a note to the bishop about you. And oddly enough, the preacher closes his mouth not into a frown but instead a smile he says nothing it's in the oddity of his smiling silence that the congregation awkwardly begins to disperse but they all leave amazed and astounded at his teaching it's a strange sermon that our lord preaches we call it the sermon on the mount i think we can all agree to an extent with the fictional parishioners of my short little anecdote who witnessed his proclamation It is weird to hear such words from the Word made flesh. It's one thing at the beginning of the sermon, Jesus says, Blessed are you who are mourning or grieving or thirsting for righteousness. That's fine. He goes on to say, Blessed are you when you are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world. That's all fine too. But then he takes the law and he cranks it up to 11. You've heard that it was said, You shall not murder. But I say that if you're angry with someone, you're a murderer. You've heard it was said that you shall not commit adultery, but I say that if your eye lingers for just a second too long on someone other than your spouse, then you are an adulterer. You've heard it was said that you shall worship the Lord your God, but I say to you that if you miss even one Sunday in church, you are liable to the H-E double hockey sticks of fire. Geez, Jesus, what's the deal? I mean, what happened to the love your neighbor as yourself? What happened to the be nice to each other every once in a while? And that's not even mentioning the abject ridiculousness of being told by the Lord that it would be better if we plucked out our eyes and cut off our arms than to continue living in the sins of our imaginations. Now, we all know that Jesus spoke in parables. He liked to tell a story. It's important sometimes to remember that Jesus also spoke in hyperbole, exaggerated speech. Stephen Webb calls it blessed excess, though it doesn't sound very blessed when Jesus says, pluck out your eye and cut off your arm. Hyperbole, it's overstating something in order to underscore. We do it all the time. We add things for emphasis. We spice up our stories for effect. We exaggerate to drive something home. We give ourselves over to hyperbole. We do it in the church, too. Have you ever heard the hymn, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing? I don't see a thousand people here this morning. I mean it would be irresponsible for us to take Jesus at his word, to take him literally, as it were, because if we did, this congregation would turn into a bunch of one armed cyclopses. And that's just the verses that Keeley read today. Jesus keeps going. And yet and yet, might it be that we find his words to be discomforting, not just because of how graphic he is, but also because of how close it hits to home. I suspect that only a very small group of Christians enjoy this part of Jesus' sermon. Honestly, I know a preacher who didn't want to have to preach a sermon on Jesus' Sermon on the Mount this week. He's standing in front of you. It's a lot. It's a lot. But there are some out there for whom this sermon, these words of Jesus taking it a little too far, for them it rings of truth because they know that more is at stake in the kingdom of heaven than just being accepted. Acceptance is a passive reality that actually runs counter to God's nature. God doesn't just accept us, otherwise God and Christ would never have preached this sermon, acceptance isn't enough. Tolerance isn't enough. Nobody wants to be accepted. Nobody wants to be tolerated. We want to be loved. And Jesus does love us, even me and you, But his love is intense, it's frightening, it's overwhelming. In fact, Jesus loves us so much, he's willing to do something that most of us avoid doing at all costs. He tells the truth. You know why we avoid the truth? It's because we don't like it. We run away from it every time it rears its ugly head. No one wants to be told they're a sinner. No one wants to admit that they're a sinner. We all have our butts, our excuses, when it comes to his words. Look, Jesus, just because I looked, it doesn't mean I acted on it. Come on, what's a little grudge got to do with me coming to the altar? So what if I get a little judgmental every once in a while? It's not like it's hurting anybody. Yeah, maybe I went too far, but it's not, I'm not as bad as some other people. Okay, Jesus, I'll admit. I said some things, I did some things I shouldn't have, but you know, it's not all that bad. Yeah, it was a mistake. Okay, Lord, I know. But I, it's not like I'm going to ever do it again. Everyone has a butt. And each of those butts is just a further reminder that at the end of the day, we're all a bunch of sinners. And to be honest, the sermon only gets worse from here. In a few verses, Jesus will tell people, hey, if someone smacks you on the cheek, you know what you should do? Give them your other cheek also. If someone asks you to go a mile, you know what you should do? You should go two miles. And then the creme de la creme, you know what you should be praying for? Your enemies. The whole sermon, it builds like a crescendo like all good sermons do until Jesus finally hammers it all home with this last line, do not judge lest ye be judged. Why are you so concerned with the speck in someone else's eye and you ignore the log that's in your own? In other words, Jesus, he preaches this sermon and it functions to help us see that you and me, we can't judge anyone else for what they've done or left undone because according to Jesus' sermon, all of us are incompatible with his teaching. Any straight reading of scripture, Jesus' sermon included, it shows that the law is inflexible, it is total, and we're never gonna match it. Do your best and God will do all the rest is not the message of the Bible. The law, these requirements, it functions to drive us out of our propensity towards self-sufficiency. It's Jesus' way of saying, you think you've got it all together, but you don't. That's why he preaches his offensive sermon. Otherwise, we are doomed to remain exactly as we are. But the Lord doesn't arrive so that things can stay the same. Jesus comes to make all things new, including us. The only problem is, change usually hurts. There's no resurrection without crucifixion. The gospel can only make alive those whom the law has killed. This sermon, it accuses us. It makes us squirm. It's Jesus' way of saying, you are dead in your sins. You are dead in your trespasses. But it also promises new life. Because the one who preaches this sermon is the same one who mounts the hard wood of the cross for people like us who don't deserve it according to what Jesus says. It's a bit odd to claim that there is good news in this sermon that Jesus preaches because it sounds like terribly bad news, but there is good news. Because at the end of the day, Jesus does for us that which we won't and can't do for ourselves. We can't live up to the expectations of Jesus' sermon, but that's kind of the point. It reminds us with words that are both vivid and frightening that we are no better than anyone else. It helps us to see, actually, that we're all in the same boat. Therefore, like Peter, who jumps out of the boat, Jesus' sermon gives us the strength when we feel like we're drowning to say, Lord, save me. And that's exactly what Jesus does. I have a friend and a former professor named Will who liked to tell a story about when he was serving in his first church. He was young. He was right out of seminary. And it was a Saturday night and he had been finishing up some notes in the sermon for Sunday morning and he got a phone call from the police department and he answered it and he said, hello? And they said, is this Will, the pastor of First Church? And he said, yes. He said, what's going on? They said, well, Mr. and Mrs. Smith, some of your parishioners are having a knockdown drag out fight and we need your help. He said, but wait a minute, you're the police. What in the world could I possibly do to help you? And they said, we need you to come and we need you to pray. So Will said he found himself getting in his car and driving over to his parishioner's house, and the whole time he was gripping that steering wheel so tightly because he was just so mad because Mr. and Mrs. Smith, they were his best church members. They were in church every single Sunday. They put more money in the offering plate than anybody else. They were these great volunteers, and he thought, those no-good, dirty, rotten scoundrels, I can't believe this. The police have called me to come fix their mess. So he gets to the house, and there's all these police cars out in front And even before he gets out of his Buick, he can hear them fighting inside the house. He hears things being thrown, and he says to the police officer, so what do I do? And he said, start praying, come on. And so he did. He got down on his knees on the asphalt, and he prayed. And then eventually the the noise started to level out. And the police officer said to Will, you know, this actually happens once a year. We never really know when it's gonna happen, but we usually just kinda wait until it simmers down because they get so angry that they basically fall asleep. And then we go in just to check to make sure that everyone's still alive, and then we come back in a year when it happens again. And so Will said that he got up from the asphalt and he walked into the house with these police officers and he saw a broken vase and a table that had turned over and there was Mr. Smith on the couch asleep he had cuts and bruises on his face and there was Mrs. Smith over in the kitchen and she was asleep and he couldn't believe it he was furious so he went home went to bed he had to get up for church in the morning and He said that it was awful because the whole morning he was supposed to be present. He was supposed to be praying and preparing to preach. And the whole time, all I could think about were the Smiths and how mad he was. And now he felt like the gospel had failed them, that he had failed as a pastor. It was just awful. He said that during the church service, even though like kids were singing and it was really cute and beautiful and faith, he wasn't listening at all because he was just still so mad. Even at the end of the sermon, you know, like all preachers, we say, and now let us respond to what God has said with the giving of our tithes. And our... He came down like I do every week. He was just so mad that Sunday at church. <laughs> Mr. and Mrs. Smith with their band-aids and their foundation covering the mess from last night. And Will said that he took the offering plates. And he turned toward the altar and he lifted them up. And he said he couldn't pray because all he could hear was Jesus say, Hey, Will, remember that log in your eye. They need the gospel just as much as you. Why is it that we're so concerned with the specks in everybody else's eye? And we don't see the log in our own. Why? It's because we're all sinners just happens to be that we are sinners in the hands of a loving God. And so I offer this to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. Amen.